Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Refuge Radio. I am your host, Brendan Bell. And I'm Gaines Taylor. We have a great show for you today, y'all. We have our guest, Luke Wilson, uh, coming to you from Toronto, Canada. And he is going to talk a little bit about his experience at Liberty University as an undergrad. He is also going to be speaking to us about his experience as a survivor of conversion therapy there. And now he is a part of a class action lawsuit against the Department of Education that he's combining with several other plaintiffs, and they are going to be going after religious universities or conservative universities that openly discriminate against the LGBTQ plus population and also receive federal funding. And so he's going to talk a little bit more about what that means and what that looks like. And we had a great chat and we hope that you enjoy it as much as we did. Welcome everyone to Refuge Radio. Once again, I'm Gaines Taylor, he, him. I am Brendan Bell, he, him. And today we are welcoming our guest, Luke Wilson. Hello. All right, welcome. <laughs> so <laughs> Luke, uh, do you just want to like, I guess we'll jump right in, like tell us a little bit and we'll just like get right into this dialogue and do all that. So tell us a little about who you are and where you're coming from and all that good stuff. All righty. Uh, my name is Luke Wilson. I am from Toronto, Ontario, Canada, born and raised here, but a lot of my adulthood was spent in the States. Uh, first, and I think perhaps uh, most germane to this conversation was uh, my time in Lynchburg, Virginia at the one and only Liberty University. I was there for four years. I graduated from Liberty with my BA in English, and I later on went to grad school and I'm still in grad school, but I went uh, I guess the, the, perhaps the question is why Liberty, which is most of the time why pe- what people ask me. <laughs> why did you attend Jerry Falwell's school? And to answer that question is to say that I was very, very religious and very, very evangelical in high school. I became a Christian in grade nine. And after that religious, religious experience, I you know, remained within a very conservative tradition, uh, Fellowship Evangelical Baptist Church here in Toronto. Uh, and in around grade 11, or in grade 11, pardon me, uh, my, my mom's cousin, who we call Uncle Gary, he said to me, he's like, Luke, do you want to come down for a trip to Virginia? He was the national recruiter for Liberty in Canada. Uh, and he said, you want to come down on this trip? And I was like, no, <laughs> I don't want to go to Virginia. <laughs> um, and yeah, and I, I think looking back, I should have stuck to my guns, but I grew up on a very strict diet of anti-American sentiment. My dad was uh, not the biggest fan of the U.S., and so I uh, shared that at the time, and I, well, maybe there's some of those still, those sentiments are still uh, in circulation, but um, <laughs> nonetheless, I, I agreed to go down on this trip because it was free, and I went down, and the thing about America and the thing about liberty, I guess, in particular, is that things are bigger there, right? In Canada, your college or your university experience is just not <laughs> what it is in the States. Like, America does it real big. And so I went down to Liberty, and Liberty, of course, was full swing. And at the time I was there, this, when, this was when Jerry Falwell Sr. was still alive, uh, the first time I went down. I actually met him. He, he, smacked, he smacked us. Like, he, like <laughs> he hit us and was like, he said, I think he called us hoods. I think he meant hoodlums, but it was this moment, like a very weird moment. It was like, hey, you hoods, and then like hit us all. And then that was that, and we never saw him again. But um, putting that aside, I decided that after my time at Liberty, I was going to go there because uh, I decided that, you know, it was, I was going to get my foundation in a Christian education and from there go on and change the world uh, for Jesus. Things changed, needless to say, but at the time, that certainly was the, the motivation. But a big, big draw actually was not just this Christian education foundation, blah, 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 uh, though that certainly was a motivating factor. But a big thing was that I noticed when I was there, they had these advertisements on campus for different activities or different uh, resources or different programs that the school offered. And one of them was their gay conversion therapy program. And I remember I, you know, asked some of the guys on campus, I was like, yo, what the heck was that ad for? Like, did you see that? Meanwhile, it's like I was desperately interested in going to this, but I wanted to, you know, suss out what I could and figure out any information I could about it. And of course, it was this 
gay conversion therapy program, the way that it was framed was, and it, it you know, they still talk uh, in this register. They'll say things like, are you struggling with same-sex attraction? And at the time, I would have identified as one who struggled, though I don't think it's so much of a struggle now. It's just who I am. But at the time, it, you know, certainly was uh, the way I, I, I conceived of it, or that was how I conceived of it. And so I, when I was making my decision to go to Liberty, that was certainly a big factor as to why I went there. And then eventually I did, obviously I went to Liberty uh, and four years of conversion therapy, four years of U.S. Uh, conservatism uh, was uh, certainly an education that I wasn't anticipating. <laughs> and I, if I could go back, I would definitely uh, not have done what I did, but that's, I guess, an entree into to who I am and, and, and a wee bit of my background. Yeah, and we share a little bit. I mean, I wasn't at Liberty as long as you, but I do remember those posters and the programs and stuff. Like, I didn't go, but what? Who was that guy again? Like, he he did. He was the only guy who handled all of that, right? Yeah. First, first, I should say you said you weren't at Liberty long as long as I was, and I I feel like saying lucky. Um, <laughs> no, no, I, I don't. Lucky is just if you don't go at all. I think that's the lucky. <laughs> like, How yeah. fair. Yeah. So the, the man who was in charge of the conversion therapy program, he retired recently, uh, thankfully. However, of course, you know, the question is, will Liberty replace him with someone or has Liberty already replaced him yeah. with someone or some folks who are going to do similar pseudoscience or practice similar pseudo counseling? Yeah, his name's Dane Emmerich. He was this like the thing about him, and I think that it's so insidious how conversion therapy works oftentimes. You know, you see films like Boy Erased and the sort of mm -hmm. militant hegemonic masculinity that they're peddling. Uh, that's one version, right? And that's, of course, a lot of people's experiences. That certainly, though, was not my experience. My experience was meeting with this very grandfatherly-like figure. His name's Dane Emmerich. If you if you Google him or you uh, you know, you can you can Google him or YouTube him, and you can see he was this like this short sort of like high-pitched kind of like voiced like grandfatherly kind of manner like faltering voice he had a faltering voice it wasn't high-pitched but it was just like yeah but it was very comforting that was the thing about him and I think that like yeah. his voice his demeanor his way of talking and you know just sort of mo was this very like seemingly loving man and I do believe that he believed he was doing the right thing, right? Like, I, don't, I don't think he's out there thinking like, let me like screw up, on, you know, thousands of young guys' lives. Though, of course, yeah. he did. Doesn't matter about right. intentions. But Dane Emmerich was this guy who would always say, you know, like, I love you, man. And always man and like, like buddy. It was always like very like bro-ish kind of like vocabulary that he would use, which is just like so off-putting. But at the time it wasn't. And I remember, you know, whenever we would go into meetings, he would start off with giving you a big hug. And then, you know, by the end of meeting, he'd give you a big hug, which, and then whenever he prayed for you, put his hands on you. And I don't mean to say that he was like being creepy per se. I mean, I have no idea what he was thinking, but I think oftentimes what he would try to do was model quote unquote, you know, how uh, men should interact physically, like the proper, you know, manly mm -hmm. touch. And so it was this very weird program. I mean, that, that's part of it, like the physicality of it. Um, the other parts of it, you know, you'd go in, he'd ask you about your week, you would give him sort of an inventory, a weekly inventory as to what you had done good and what you had done that was bad. So what he called your victories, like the moments that you resisted temptation, the moments you didn't look at porn, the moments you called your friend and was like, I'm feeling like I should, I want to look at porn. So let's go hang out instead. Those were the victories. And then he would talk about the, you know, your slip ups, the things, the times that you made mistakes or sinned really, quote unquote, uh, and according to his definition of sin. And then after that, we'd pray and he would always be the one praying. I think it's pretty telling, of course, that he was the one interceding on my behalf, never me praying for myself. We'd read scripture. We also read, uh, it was like a, a manual. Mine was called Growth into Manhood, Resuming the Journey by Alan Benninger. He's this, uh, one of those mir miraculous ex-gays, those guys who just like kind of like woke up and was not gay anymore. Um, which, of course, when you're a 18 year old gay kid, not wanting to be gay, or at least, pardon me, tell, being told you're you don't want to be gay, that seems like a pretty cool <laughs> avenue to follow, right? Like, oh, if yeah. only I could do that. And of course, that's impossible. Of course, that never happened. Of course, Alan Medinger is what we call a liar. And all of this, of course, you know, presents you with this really cruel sense of optimism that you can to change. 
And so that was sort of this, and again, this idea of cruel optimism, I think, and that's not my own idea. That's uh, this, a late scholar, her name is Laura Berlant from University of Chicago. She talks about this idea of cruel optimism and cruel optimism is where you have this object of desire, which for me, of course, was being straight, that is precluded at its very inception, which is to say that it never was possible from its very, you know, by when I when I thought about being straight, of course, that was never possible, but it was something that I wanted and I yearned for and I and I I sought after for years. And of course, the cruelty there is that I'm never going to be straight, but it's what I want most. And that's what and the reason why I, you know, I thought it was possible because I was told it was possible. Right. Of course, looking back now, it's like, obviously, we can't change. But, you know, now I'm what, 31 versus when I was 18 and, and before and, and, you know, after. I was told I could change and I was told that there were people who did change. And I was told, you know, again, Alan Medinger did it. Why can't I? And Pastor Dane, this, this Dane Emmerich, the, the conversion therapist at Liberty, he peddled this fiction, this lie for four years. And I believed it before, during and after. Um, and as a result, uh, it was a pretty crummy time, right? <laughs> like you want to be straight, pardon me again, you're told you want to be straight. You're told throughout your life that you can't be gay and a Christian. And when you have that false dichotomy set up for you as a young kid, if you're going to choose between being gay, as if, again, you can choose, choose between, you know, being gay and choose God, what you're going to quote unquote choose is God, because you think that that's, you know, the be all and end all. You think that that's, uh, you know, you've been told that, you know, what do you want, hell or heaven? And of course, when you're this young kid, you're like, I want heaven, you know, without doubt. So that was that was what I think was just so insidious about Pastor Dane is that he he presented himself as this really warm grandfatherly type, but of course he um, was was uh, proposing or peddling this uh, this lie that I could change, and of course I I couldn't and I didn't, and here we are today, still living that big old gay lifestyle that I was warned warned about, whatever the gay lifestyle is. Thank you for sharing that. I love this idea. I mean, love, I don't love the idea, but I love how you phrase this idea of cruel optimism. I think that is such a simple and beautiful way of explaining exactly what evangelical, and not even just evangelical, but many religious conservative cultures do to queer people in their midst. Uh -huh. um, I am curious for you, as you were kind of experiencing this and going through this process with with this man, what were you like feeling? How, how were you experiencing that? And what did that look like in your day-to-day -day life as you were a queer person at Liberty University? First of all, how I felt, it's one of those like such, it's such a complicated thing because Dane presented himself as this loving man who had his best, who had my best interest in mind. Because that's how it was framed, you never wanted to upset him or disappoint him, right? He was this ego ideal. He was this mentor, this guy that you wanted to be like. And whenever you would come to him, you'd feel ashamed. Or maybe I, the better word is guilty because he, he framed these, these moments as slip-ups that what I was doing wasn't really who I was. It was just some sort of like sinful moment that I had. So it was the sense of guilt, like in the sense of like a court of law, where it's like you're guilty for that one action, not necessarily you as a person. So initially it was this, like, you're guilty for that one action or those one, you know, actions or whatever. And so initially it was, again, it was this sense of guilt where I felt bad. I'd feel, you know, oh goodness, I don't want to disappoint him. But of course, as time goes on, it's not just that one action, right? That, that one action seems to be defining my weeks <laughs> and my months and my year and ultimately me, right? And that action is a result of me simply being gay. And so that guilt or that sense of guilt slowly transforms not just into like these the feeling bad about discrete individual actions but feeling bad about who you are because you're like oh this is a pattern this is habitual this is again who i am and so the 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 negative feeling turns inward it it's not just you know oh, that one moment that i did you know on on may 27th or whatever it's instead luke's bad and so that shame begins to turn into ultimately self-hatred right because you're like how come so many other people are able to become straight. How come, or not even necessarily straight, right? It's not that a conversion therapy always is promising that you're going to change your orientation completely, but they always say that you change your orientation for at least one unicorn of a woman, right? Like this one yeah. woman is out there yeah. who you're going to find and it's like never found her, but it was always this promise that you're going to at least, at least find attraction to one woman and then you're going to marry that one woman. And it didn't matter who, as long as she was a woman. And so 
I think that that for me, when I felt again over time, I would get more and more frustrated that I wasn't changing. And sometimes I'd convince myself that I was. And there were moments where I was like, "Look at me! Like I'm I haven't felt you know uh, attraction to a man in a man in about a week or like things like this, which was like just total <laughs> again half truths and by half truths I mean complete lies <laughs> that I was telling myself. And and I think that you know that shame that that turns into again self hatred. It's incredibly damaging, and it's one of those things that you also are are, are conceiving the, of these of these feelings as the Holy Spirit convicting you, right? The Holy Spirit's making yeah. you feel bad about that sin, and so you think of it, you know, oh, this is ultimately in a way a, a good thing that the that God's like making me like, you know, God hasn't turned me over to my temptations yet, to use you know a biblical uh, phrase, but instead that God's still working in me, that God's still t- letting me know that what I've done is bad and convicting me, you know, so this is Holy Spirit's the Holy Spirit's conviction. So that's part of it. The other part of it is that, you know, when you did feel that you were making progress, that you were becoming straight in some way, shape or form, that there was a sense of joy. And like, again, it was, you know, that you felt like, oh, gosh, I'm actually like, my, my heart's changing, or my attractions are changing. And it's just this constant t- push and pull within yourself that I think would, I would say, define my four years. But on top of that, too, it's, you're not just trying to convince yourself that you're straight, you're trying to convince others, right? So there's that emotional labor that you're expending constantly and thinking, how am I presenting? How am I acting? And emphasis here on the word acting, right? Like you are in a very literal sense, acting or performing for others. And so for me, it was this uh, both inward and outward uh, struggle that I was, I was trying to convince others, trying to convince myself, trying to navigate and negotiate my feelings of, again, guilt, which turned to shame, which turned to self-hatred. And all that to say, it was a lot of fun at Liberty University. <laughs> <laughs> yes. You know? Gosh, I could not identify more with what you just said, Luke, about this performative exhaustion when it comes to being straight or at least playing straight. That was absolutely my experience, not just in my own conservative university that I attended, but even continuing on when I was in ministry doing all of that work, it's exhausting. And it's, it costs us something because we're not just performing, we're also hiding who we are. And we're lim- and for me, at least it limited my access to things that I needed, like love, and ultimately joy. But yeah. And you know, when when you are you're saying it limited your access to your love to love and joy absolutely right when you are for years right all of us i think for years had to pretend we were something that we weren't and in that you're not just trying to pretend you're not something that you are you're also trying to pretend you're something that you're i guess the flip side which is maybe an obvious statement is that you're you're not just like covering who you are but you're also trying to be something else and so when you do that you are not investing in who you are and you're not developing who you are and you're not getting to know who you are and figuring out things that a lot of people figure out quite early when they're straight, right? Like, how do I think about myself and then how do I then relate to others? And especially in a romantic sense, right? Like for, for so long, I had no idea about dating. And of course, when I go on dates, if we can call them dates with the women who eventually were probably like, get me out of here. Like they were probably just as uninterested as I was <laughs> at the end of the day. You know, it was, I, I it, it felt unbelievably alien and unnatural, right? Like it did not feel natural to be with these folks that I was trying to, to like and, you know, find attraction to. And when I eventually started dating guys, that's when I was, by the time I got, to Nashville was when I started actually dating guys. Um, and when I was there, it was like, I was 13, right? Like all these, all these yeah. folks out there who know how to date, they know how to talk to, to guys, they know how to, you know, do all this. I'm that awkward kid in the corner who was like, how do I even approach someone at a bar, you know? And like, yep. it was this, it was this process that you had to, in, you know, uh, you had to, you had to relearn or maybe not even relearning. It's not even like we learned in the first place. You had to learn at a very late age how to navigate dating and romantic relationships and this kind of stuff because for so long, you didn't have access to that world or that, that those opportunities. And so I think that, you know, in a lot of ways, I've, I've been described in a lot of ways as a late bloomer. <laughs> and I'd like to think that I'm, you know, 
uh, blooming, but at the same time, maybe not, maybe I'm just deceiving myself again. But ultimately, I think the reason is because I had to hide for so many years who I really am and who I really am in a lot of ways is, is queer Luke. Again, that's not the totality of who I am. My sexuality is not everything that I am, but it certainly is a significant part, just as much as straight people's straightness is a significant part of who they are. Yeah. Um, that of course infiltrates or you know, filters down into all sorts of parts of you and, and, and shape who you are. And so I think for us, what we, we missed was our, our, you know, the years that a lot of people take for granted. And for us, we didn't get those years until we were well into our 20s, if not, you know, beyond. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I think about exactly what you're saying all the time, Luke, for myself, because it's like, for me, not only it's like, did I experience all of this time of isolation that was hard and it was difficult? it's like now that I'm out and I'm kind of navigating everything, it's like I'm still dealing with the consequences of cultural homophobia, the internalized homophobia that I received from my upbringing and from the circles that I placed myself in throughout my life. And so it's like, it's it's kind of like the gift that just keeps giving. <laughs> Not in a good yeah. way. Yeah. Yeah, and having to like dismantle or or deconstruct a lot of like the the like you're saying the internalized homophobia i think this is something that queers from more liberal circles sometimes not always right like you have a lot of folks who are in liberal circles who don't come out again until they're you know 20s or 30s or whatever as well and that, i don't need yeah. to make a, a generalization that's simply untrue but i do have a number of queer friends now and, and that's something i that's also something right when did we have queer like a queer group that's something that is so important, at least for me. I, I love having my queer friends now. And it's something that I didn't have really until, I mean, I had queer friends in the States in different cities when I'd go and visit. I'd have one queer friend who had made a queer group uh, of friends, but really like a queer group of friends didn't really happen for me until my 30s. And it's yeah. something that I'm so thankful for, but it's like I didn't have. But I hear from a lot of these folks who came out, came out when they were like 13 or 14. I'm like, that's that's just anathema like that as if I, that ever would have happened for me or you know I'm, and all that to say is I'm super jealous of that in a lot of ways but for them they were able to work through a lot of the stuff that I think that I'm I, I had to work through in my 20s 30s and perhaps I'm still working through today because they had the time and the space at a very young age to do that and it's something that yeah I would I, I'm envious of it I, I wish that were my experience but it simply obviously isn't and wasn't but here we are I guess <laughs> yeah so I'm curious for your experience kind of going through all of this, was there a moment for you? Cause I mean, I totally identify with the highs and the lows and everything, you know, emotionally is a mixed bag because when we are kind of stuck in that culture of conservatism and, you know, homophobia, we kind of can go along with that and want that for ourselves too. And so I get like the feelings of joy when you feel like you are quote unquote conquering that I definitely experienced a lot of that myself. I am curious though for you, were there any moments during your time at Liberty where something, there was maybe a moment where you're like, something's not right here or you began to question those things or if not at Liberty, when was that moment for you when you started to kind of switch and think something's not right here? Yeah, it for me, it, I, I don't think I can say it was at Liberty because Liberty, when I was there, they described, they described this phenomenon in Gaines. Maybe you had, you heard about this as well when you were there, this idea of peer pressure in the right direction, which is like this like horrifying word or phrase, should I say, where it's like, obviously. I forgot about that. And then just trigger. <laughs> <laughs> oh, <Yeah>. shoot. <laughs> what have I done? But I'll, I'll be back later, guys. <laughs> yeah, I need at least 50. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> No, I think I think that so this 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 phrase peer pressure in the right direction, which of course is institutional pressure passed down to students who are forced to police each other because there are fines and community service that's a result for you know not following what they describe as the liberty way, the student code of conduct, and this peer pressure in the right direction, I think, precluded me from really questioning a lot of this because again, when you're in this bubble and liberty, they described it as a liberty bubble, which a lot of campuses have, but liberties is a very particular, maybe Christian colleges are very particular, they have a very particular bubble that surrounds the campus. When you're in that space, you don't question as much or 
it's it's not as perhaps easy to do so and i i do have friends who were at liberty who were already like deconstructing and pushing against the the main sort of uh dogma that was being taught but for me i wasn't one who really pushed against it because i really wanted to you know i wanted i was part of this like heterosexual project i really wanted to become straight and i didn't really question too much other than maybe like the the political stuff because for me as as a canadian kid i was always able to separate my politics from my religion and i never really saw an issue with voting liberal and in canada we have a party it's called the liberal they're very they're very uh creative in canada it's the liberal party the conservative party um and so i always went for the i was always a quite liberal that's most likely because of my dad but actually he was a green party guy we had the green party it's like anyway that has nothing to do with what we're talking about <laughs> so let me let me get back on track so I didn't question anything really when I was at Liberty because I was really, you know, drinking the Kool-Aid. I was following the herd. I was going in that direction, in the, in the quote unquote right direction. And then when I went to the wrong direction was when I went to grad school. And I remember this wasn't necessarily the first moment that I was really, you know, beginning to question things. But it was the moment that, that I remember as a, break, as a breaking point. I was about to go to the pub to visit a buddy. Uh, we were going to grab some beers on campus. And it was, to my memory, it was a winter night. And so I was about to, you know, go out and brave the cold. And I was standing in my kitchen. I was in a split level apartment, half underground, half, you know, above ground. And I was in that kitchen, which was underground. And I remember standing over my sink, you know, you know, the lights were off, except for like the, you know, the few like dimly lit, whatever, a few, a few like small lights. And I remember just standing there. I had just finished dinner. And I was thinking to myself, like, what the actual heck? Like, I didn't, I or like, what the fuck? Like, really was the, the language I remember using. I was like, what the fuck is this God? Like, I've been trying, and I've been trying, and I've been trying for so damn long, right? Like, I have been, tr- you know, attempting to become straight. I have been reading my Bible. I have been praying. I have been fasting. I was a big faster. I used to always fast, and I would drink only Gatorade and milk. Um, like, like, disgusting. Like back. But, you know, I, I, you know, I was like, God, like, what is this? How can I be so committed to you and so committed to becoming straight and still nothing is happening. When I see apparently, you know, other people out there who are all, you know, they're able to date women after, you know, a few months of conversion therapy. And I just knew that I wasn't going to do that unless I was attracted to that person. And I'm standing over my sink and I was like sobbing and I was like, God, what the fuck? Like, what is going on here? Why can't I just become straight? What is this? And of course, there were no answers. This was very much a monologue. God, seemed, God was strangely silent <laughs> that night, as God strangely always is with me. But I remember just that was the moment where I was just like, what is going on? Like, how is it that I can be so committed and yet see no fruit to use, you know, some Christianese? And eventually, I think that that pushed me to when I, that was at McMaster, I was doing my MA there. And then I, when I, by the time I got to, to Nashville, I decided that when I was going to get to Nashville, I was going to live as an out gay man. Because even when I went back to Toronto in the summer between uh, uh, McMaster and Vanderbilt, I went back and I was, I was dating this guy, but I was like terrified of anyone finding out. He was like completely yeah. like, he met like two of my friends. And those were the only two friends that I had admitted at that point that I liked guys. But other than them, I, no one knew, certainly not my family. And I was very much closeted, even though I was in a relationship with this guy. But I decided by the time I got to Nashville, I was not going to be closeted. I was not going to be hiding who I am. And I was going to live as an out gay man. And so I did. And that was the first time where I decided that I was not going to let my theory dictate my lived reality, which is to say I was not going to let my theology guide what I was going to do. I was instead going to let what I do guide my theology. So I was going to live first and theorize or theologize, because of course, theology is just after all theory. I was going to theorize after I had lived. And this was this like paradigm shift for me, because up until that point, I was always using this very strict and narrow sort of framework to, to, that, that dictated how I, how I was living. But of course, that wasn't going so well. It wasn't really aligning with my lived reality. So I was like, let me maybe let my lived reality dictate things first and then see how does this fit with my theology? You know what, if it doesn't fit with my theology, maybe that's not a good theology to have. And that's yeah. how I started living. And that was, again, once I had was in a space where no one really knew me, or at least I didn't know anyone all that well. But that was, that was a big paradigm shift for me. But it was once I was out of 
and it was maybe it was in a lot of ways like a privileged space because I had no one I I knew that I from my past who was going to go and tell you know so and so that oh I saw Luke at a gay bar or you know Luke's uh, Luke's apparently uh, going on dates with men no one knew because it was again it was a totally new space so for me that that's how I was able to begin breaking through that that really strict narrow framework that I had uh, been taught for so many years. I I mean. That space, though, I'm sure was helpful having that like open, open space. Yeah, that this is going a little Christianese, but that wilderness, if you will, to like new space. Yeah, well, it was with me. I was going I went to, to divinity school, but I went to a very liberal divinity school. Like it's like if you have like on the scale of liberal to conservative, I was like, there's Harvard, which was often like complete left field. They didn't really know where they were in the, in the liberal. They were just like <laughs> as liberal as they come. Vanderbilt yeah. was like the next one over. At least this is how we've been, we've been, to, uh, is what I was told. And Vanderbilt's very, very liberal as well. And like the, I think when I was there, three of the four deans of the divinity school were queer. And so, and a number of the professors were queer. And it was just, again, a very like, uh, uh, I don't know, socially conscious <laughs> institution that was pushing me to not just think through theology, but also, you know, questions of racism and questions of race and thinking through my whiteness and, uh, you know, thinking through like my gender expression and identity, even though of course I had been, you know, scrutinizing that for years with conversion therapy, all of a sudden I was doing it in a very different way. And so, you know, I remember one big thing for me at, at Vanderbilt as well was when I switched my, my belief that I don't believe that, that scripture is God's word, I believe these are words about God. And for a long time, that was terrifying. And it sounds like yeah. such a small shift, but for those of us in, you know, who, who come from religious or con- conservative backgrounds, we know that that's a world of a difference, yes. right? And so I think that for me was another thing that really allowed me to have a more liberatory theology that was not, you know, taking, you know, scripture uh, for face, you know, uh, taking, uh, interpreting scripture literally. I was now able to be like, wait a second, maybe some of what I'm reading here has like a political influence and in what when it was written like right yep. at the time there were politics going on that I don't know about but this is why this verse says this or whatever and I was looking at more historically politically whatever and that allowed me as well to begin to think through these things and I think again that's a very privileged thing as well right to be in school to have the time and space to do that but that was the way that I was able to to begin to deconstruct the really horrible beliefs that I had clung to for so long yeah no, I could not identify with that more. I That was part of the beginning of my journey of deconstruction was realizing, learning how the Bible was even constructed and then asking, and this was for me in undergrad at a conservative Christian university, they were teaching us this. And I'm like, so what about the Council of Nicaea made them so much more spiritual yeah. than anyone else like I that was such a there are so many moments in my journey that that I guess kind of blew that open for me but I think for me it was that switch of God's word to words about God that really was the pivotal moment for me um in my journey of religious deconstruction I really identify with that I think that's the point I always got to even when I wasn't really sure like even early on, I'm like, yeah, but how did they get to decide like so later on? Well, there was a bunch of documents and they found the most. I'm like, yeah, but you can find a lot of documents. That doesn't mean they're true. <laughs> I mean, nowadays, there's so much on the internet that is like, you go to like deviant.com or Reddit and there's a lot of the same stuff. That doesn't mean that should be like the basis of our beliefs. <laughs> like, oh, it's exactly it. Yeah. And, you know, this, I feel like the literal interpretation of God it's so intellectually dishonest. <laughs> like if you are to do honestly, like the smallest amount of reading on the history, context, canonization, translation of scripture, you will find very, very, very quickly how what we had been taught for so long was simply just inaccurate, <laughs> right? Yeah. And to, to cling to those beliefs is simply I think that you have to perform a lot of intellectual gymnastics in order to hold a literalist interpretation of scripture. And I, you know, I think I would rather be- have belief in something that's 
accurate or historic or aligns with the historical record than to have some sort of fiction that I feel safe in it. And, you know, to be honest, when I deconstructed, there was a lot of feeling of unsafety because for the first time, I didn't believe that I knew everything, that I was, you know, I had, I had found access to all of God's answers to everything. For the first time, I was like, wait a second, like maybe I don't know for sure or for certain X, Y, and Z or in America Z. You know, it was this, it was this moment of like intellectual sort of like reckoning that was horrifying or terrifying, right? Like you, you yeah. no longer feel like you have the answers to everything and everything's not black and white. There's a whole lot more gray in the world when all of a sudden you don't have this, you know, literalist interpretation of scripture. So it is scary and it's not fun. And it's actually like quite distress. It was quite distressing <laughs> for a very long time. But, and I don't think that I have a lot of answers, even though I've been searching for answers diligently <laughs> for years. And I think that what happens is bare minimum, you can rest assured that you are intellectually honest. And that I think is so much more important than clinging to fictions that make you feel safe. Very well said. I, yeah, and I've really, I'm, I have very little knowledge of this, but <laughs> like, what I've I've read a little bit over the last few years about like the mystics, like early on Christian mystics and just being okay with the unknown. And it's like, when did we lose that? When did that like get thrown away and like, no, that's wrong or like, that's not okay. When there was that early, like, you know, being okay with the unknown, being okay with just experience and, and the fact of like ex experiential and not studying you know, like what you're saying. And yeah, I, I totally agree with you. Yeah. And those are so, there are so many verses, like if we want to take as one example, the book of Job, where God, like, I mean, this is also like, it's a whole, I think a horrible theodicy, like this <laughs> discussion of, you know, reconciling a good God with a uh, evil. I don't think God kind of sidesteps the question in the book of Job, but putting that aside in the book of Job, God is, he asked this litany of questions you know, where were you when I was, you know, creating the, the, the whatever, like the, the earth, where were you when I was doing X, Y, and, and, and Z. And so I think that like, in that book, what we see and what we're able to read is like you're saying gains this like profound sense of wonder, this profound sense of awe of God, but Christians uh, sort of forfeit that in the name of absolute answers or the, the, the perception of absolute answers, the, the need for absolute answers. Because again, God's mystery is a lot less comforting, I think, in some ways, even though I think on this side, I think God's mystery is a lot more comforting. But, on, but for the evangelical imagination, I think that it's a lot less comforting than saying, oh, I actually know the answer to, to all of these questions. Yeah. Um, and it's something that we see, and it's something that is perhaps in need of major rethought, <laughs> rethinking. Yeah, I, th I, it's so interesting that you bring up Job, because I have a love-hate relationship with Job. Job is a very, obviously a very problematic book, but it's, I think for its time, I have to imagine that was actually revolutionary. And I think it's interesting. That it's the oldest book in the Bible and it's a, uh, it's a deconstruction <laughs> of their belief system. <laughs> the oldest book in the Bible that we have is actually a deconstruction because it's deconstructing their belief of if you bless Israel, you will receive blessing. And this book is like, maybe that's not true. <laughs> maybe we just don't understand why <laughs> bad things happen to good people. Yeah. And again, like I, I have a lot of issues with <laughs> that approach to evil, right? Like, you know, saying, well, you just don't know because you're not God. <laughs> but putting that right. aside, again, I think there's much to, to salvage or much to, to focus on there when it comes to the idea of God's mystery. Because again, I, I still believe in God. I don't know who the heck that God is, but I do believe in God. And maybe that's speaking more to my need to believe in a God and my need to believe in a good God particularly. But yeah, yeah. I still believe in God. And, and again, that's a very like ambiguous who that God is. And I have no dang clue. But putting that aside, it's like, I, I, I would ultimately say that I live much more into the mystery of God now that I, I don't cling so fast to this literalist interpretation of this very like trite surface level, um, really bizarre interpretation of scripture because I don't again I, I think that it's not intellectually honest yeah well I am going to do a left turn because there's something else I really want to talk to you about <laughs> and we're running out of time <laughs>
Luke, you are suing the government, or you have joined a lawsuit that is suing the government and going after Liberty University specifically and other conservative religious colleges. You're joining a lawsuit with many people suing many different places. So I'm wondering, how did you, what brought you to that point? And what does that, what has that journey kind of looked like for you? Yeah, so I'm part of a class action lawsuit with 39 other plaintiffs. I'm, uh, uh, there are 40 of us. We are suing the U.S. Department of Education because every year the U.S. Department of Education gives out billions, not just millions, but billions of dollars to religious colleges and universities that actively discriminate against LGBTQ students. And what we're saying is we think that religious colleges and universities we don't think that they should be <laughs> discriminated against LGBTQ students, but if they want to, we're not, again, they're not saying they should, we're just saying that if they want to, they ultimately should be able to do that on their own dime, not on the dime of the US taxpayer. So we're saying if, if you wanna be homophobic and you want, or transphobic, and you want to be uh, awful to LGBTQ students, you can do that, but you should be financing your homophobia and transphobia on your own dime. And so, you know, in the same way that religious uh, or any university cannot discriminate on the basis of race or sex, we're saying one are these universities cannot discriminate on the basis of gender identity and or expression and sexual orientation. And so there are, of course, a lot of religious colleges and universities in the states that have these policies. Uh, Liberty University, perhaps one of the best known, you know, Brigham Young University, uh, George Fox, you can keep going. There are so many of these schools out there. And we are suing and hoping that what's going to happen is that these schools, if they want to continue with these policies that they have in place, uh, that they will do it without uh, the, the U.S. government offering them uh, federal funds. And so I became a part of this lawsuit. Oh, goodness. Was it? Yeah. Sometime in 2020. It was, of course, during the pandemic. And I was in a, I am in a Facebook group and there was a post about anyone who went to a religious college or university who's queer and someone tagged me in it because they're like, that's Luke Wilson. It's all he talks about. Um, it's always funny, right? What people know you for and like think that you only talk about this. And it's like, that's what I talk about on Facebook. Sorry. But you know, I swear there are other parts to my life, <laughs> but yeah, it's, it is funny what you get known for. <laughs> and Someone said, Luke Wilson, this is you. And I looked uh, at the post and sure enough, there was this uh, lawyer, his name's Paul Southwick. Uh, and he said, and, and I, I followed up with him. I said, hey, you know, I went to Liberty and I would be very much interested in this. So I jumped on a Zoom call. And, you know, after about 20 minutes, we realized that I would be a part of the case. And so it's an absolute privilege and honor to be a part of the case because um, if in fact this, our lawsuit is successful and if in fact we make it to the Supreme Court, this could have really far-reaching implications for schools like Liberty. And I do. I hope that we win, obviously. Like, I, I, I hope that uh, we are successful. And it'd be wonderful if these schools had to, you know, draw upon their, their uh, endowments or just, you know, student tuition to do this. Because I think that ultimately a lot of students will be discouraged to go to these schools if, in fact, they have the, they can take out federal loans. And that would ultimately uh, really hurt their enrollment. And I want that because Liberty should not be able to do what they're doing. Uh, they are awful with how they deal with queer students, uh, how they treat queer students. A lot of queer students have to live in queer subterfuge. They cannot uh, be open and honest with who they are, them, uh, with, with their you know, classmates, with the professors, and ultimately with themselves. And I hope to goodness that we're successful so that Liberty has to reckon with modernity <laughs> and, and reckon yeah. with what it means to be a university in 2021 or you know, whenever this lawsuit is, is final, uh, because what they do is abhorrent. Yeah. So... Moving forward with this lawsuit, what's kind of the next step for it? Or what does that look like? Yeah, so we are, most recently we were, you know, I, I don't know much about uh, legal discourse or proceedings. So I'm <laughs> quite useless in a lot of ways. But we recently began the process of like meeting with the judge. Uh, and I think there's sort of this consultation beforehand that happens. But moving forward, I mean, it's going to be that I, I, I suppose that we're all going to be witnessing and we're all going to be offering uh, our, uh, our stories. And again, I don't really know what happens and how this works. So I do feel somewhat out of my league. But if, if anyone is interested uh, in, in, in learning more about this, uh, they should check out the organization that's Paul Southwick, the one who's leading this organization and leading this lawsuit. 
the organization's name is the Religious Exemption Accountability Project, REAP, R-E-A-P. Uh, and so if anyone's interested to check out their website or they're on Instagram, they're on Twitter, uh, and they're pretty active with, with posting. Most recently, of course, BYU had uh, some horrible comments made. And also there were there was a hate crime on campus, or what I would define as a hate crime. There was a student who was uh, defacing some like queer sidewalk chalk, and he just he's what did he say? Something along the lines of uh, uh, "faggots go to hell" uh, were the words that he used. Caught it on film, and so yeah, all this to say is uh, the REAP, uh, the Religious Exemption Accountability Project, is is where you want to go if you're looking for any more information about this lawsuit. Again, it's just such it's in its nascent stages, its very beginning stages, so I don't know too too much. But as time goes on, we're going to be learning more and more, or I'll be learning more and more, and hopefully other folks who are following along uh, will learn as well. Yeah, thanks for sharing about that, because I, I hope very much so that goes through and they lose that funding. I, I mean, I hope too, like besides that, it also pushes them to rethink what they're doing and, you know, say, hey, maybe we are wrong on this and maybe let's cut this conversion therapy and look at the damage we've done, you know, both sides of those. But I think, I think more losing the funding is what's going to happen and they're going to keep up <laughs> doing, unfortunately. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. And yeah. I'm, I'm curious to know, like, because I'm wondering if they might say, yes, we will follow in accordance with this lawsuit, like the, the, uh, the outcome of the lawsuit. And, and then of course, continue doing what they're doing. Um, because yeah. Even with conversion therapy, you know, as a practice in the states, right now there are about 20 some odd states who that have outlawed conversion therapy for minors. Of course, that does not cover folks who are at the age of uh, consent. And of course, what I always say is that abuse should never be an option, right? Like people should never be able to consent to abuse. So those people who are above the age of 18 aren't protected. But what happens is with these with these uh, states that have outlawed it, conversion therapy is not going to stop, right? It's just going to go underground. And I wonder if Liberty, if in fact, even if they say, yes, we will follow, you know, the, uh, again, uh, what you're telling us we have to do, and we're not going to, you know, discriminate against our, our, our queer students, it's probably just going to go underground. And again, who knows what's going to happen and, and really predictions are not almost ever helpful. <laughs> you know, I, I, and so I, I, I hazard to even say like, this is what would happen or, or might happen. But ultimately, I do, I, I hope that they they either lose their funding or they, they follow it. They follow suit and they actually follow what, what they're, there's, you know, what is good and what is right. Will they do that? I don't know, but again, time will tell. Yeah. What would, uh, what would you say to the students who like are at the liberties and like are stuck there for whatever reason, or, you know, uh, right now, like, what would you say to them like during this time where they're going through all this? Yeah. I mean, if they're at Liberty, I would say quarantine and don't, don't be out and about like every other student. Maybe that's the first step and crazy to follow all these different events on campus. They had like a block party. They had like they had their, you know, football game. And then you see all these folks without masks. Anyway, I digress. But uh, what I would say to these folks, what I would say to these queer students there is find a community, right? Find the queer community on or off campus. And of course, on campus is so hard to find when you're in these spaces and, you know, everything is surrounded in, uh, by secrecy. But what I would say is, you know, definitely try to fight, cultivate a community. And ultimately, a lot of these towns, even like in, in Liber where Liberty is, it's in Lynchburg, Virginia, they have, you know, uh, different queer spaces in and around the city. And so to like go and, and reach out and, and not be alone, because I think that, you know, looking back, what was so death dealing about my experience there was simply the fact that I had really no connection or I had a connection to some queer folks, but again, we were all in the, of the same mindset that we were struggling with same-sex attraction. And of course, that's not helpful. That's not <laughs> going to you know, uh, create authentic community or you know, uh, good mental health. So I would say find the, find the queer folks in town and do your best to cultivate relationships there. And of course, if that's not possible or that's not easy to find, there's of course online spaces as well. And to cultivate a queer community online is you know, not a, a perhaps ideal but it is certainly something uh, and it can be a lifeline when you're when you're surrounded by a bunch of uh, straight folks or at least people who are presenting as straight thank you well i think i i think you have answered all of my questions Gaines, did you have anything else you wanted to talk about no no it was it was great hearing your story and thanks for sharing all that and sharing about the reap organization and the lawsuit going on cuz we need that right now. So yeah, absolutely. all of us being there. Yeah. At one point or in one way or another. 
Luke, is there anything else that you haven't shared or talked about that is something on your mind or something that you would want to share to? Well, I have been watching Sex in the City recently, um, and I never watched it up until now. And I just think that Charlotte is always smiling and it's a little annoying, to be honest. That's that's what's been on my mind, uh, to be honest. <laughs> otherwise, otherwise, not too much. Fair. Yeah. That's that's the title of the episode right there. <laughs> Why is Charlotte always smiling? She's always smiling. You always have that little curl on the side of her lip, eh? Like she's it's like, is there a joke you're not telling the rest of us? Like, enough. Correct. I just I'm a little sick of it, to be honest. Yeah. No, otherwise, no, I I I I I, I think that uh, we covered we covered most of what uh, I think is important to talk about, at least as it relates to my biography. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, great. Thank you. Yeah, no, it was awesome having you on the show, Luke. I think you have, I have identified so much with so much, so much of what you have experienced is very similar to what I've experienced. And I'm sure it is very similar to what a lot of our listeners either are experiencing or have experienced as well. So thank you so much for your honesty, your vulnerability, and your courage to move forward and be a part of this lawsuit. I'm sure that's going to be that's going to present its own challenges. So thank you for being a part of that and advocating for all of us, really. Of course. And thank you guys for having me on here. I appreciate it. That was a great discussion. I'm glad we re- we got to have him on the show. I, I really enjoyed like hearing his experience at Liberty, what he's what Luke's doing with the lawsuit. And I really enjoyed him sharing about finding community because I mean, that's what we talk about week in, week out. You need community. That's that's the big thing. We hope you find it with us online. We're a location that we hope you feel comfortable with. It's a queer space, but there's other spots too. There's the Queer Christian Fellowship, and they are qchristian.org. Uh, there's also the Believer app, and they're available on iOS or the Google Play Store, and they are a social media app but also a dating app if you're looking for that special someone but also just friends so that's that's a great resource too the other big news with refuge faith community right now is we are an official nonprofit corporation now and so we'll have some more fun news coming up with that soon but for now just celebrating that thank you all for listening we hope you enjoyed luke's story as much as we did And uh, we hope that as you go out into your day, into your week, into your month, that you find joy, you find peace, and you find refuge everywhere you go. Thanks for listening to Refuge Radio with your hosts, Gaines Taylor and Brendan Bell. Audio production and music were provided by Inclusion Audio with musical help from Lennon Braun. Find Refuge Faith Community on social media, on Instagram at refuge underscore faith underscore community, or on Twitter at refuge underscore faith.